Welcome to the pilot episode of the In Focus podcast. My name is Anthony Lightning. I'm a second year politics and journalism student at Rhodes University. This podcast first came about out of necessity, a series of stories I needed to produce for my course. However, with the help of young producer Jordan, I hope this podcast grows out of that and turns into a platform where I can produce interesting content on topics that interest me and hopefully some of you too. It was on New Year's Eve 2019 when the World Health Organization received the first reports coming out of Wuhan, China of a curious new virus. Fast forward to the 15th of March 2020, the world had pretty much come to a standstill, borders had been closed and nations were declaring states of emergency, including President Ramaphosa, who joined the fight against COVID and declared South Africa to be in a state of disaster. We have now declared a national state of disaster in terms of the Disaster Management Act. It's been a little over two months since then, and South Africans are starting to adjust to a new normal. However, many of us are still left wondering, what exactly is a state of disaster? A lot of us would have known about states of emergency, and throughout the globe, in light of um, COVID-19, a lot of the state response has been to enact a state of emergency. Mm. Now, in South Africa, it's provided for under Section 37 of the Constitution, and um, it says that in a state of emergency, um, such, such and certain civil liberties under the Bill of Rights, such as freedom of assembly, can be uh, derogated from. Now, there are certain rights that you cannot derogate, so they must be upheld even in a state of emergency. Mm. And that is um, the right to dignity, life, and to um, fair trial. Now, state of, of disaster is a little bit different. It's not expressly provided for under the, con under the Constitution, but rather it is provided under a piece of legislation uh, known as the Disaster Management Act in 2002. Now, this provides what can happen and the process that should be followed in um, establishing a um, state of disaster. Now, what this um, piece of legislation does is that it gives um, powers and duties to a particular minister to exercise certain powers and duties um, in a uh, state of um, disaster. And under this, certain rights can be limited. They're not derogated from but they can be limited and that is why we have had a number of regulations in South Africa introduced which is limiting our freedom of movement to freedom of assembly and other restrictions on what goods we can and uh, cannot purchase. Now um, there has been an awful lot of conversation across the world South Africa is not unique in this about mm. the impact that a state of um, disaster can have on uh, civil liberties and democracy. That was Professor Kiara Staunton. She's a senior lecturer in law and the LLB program leader at Middlesex University, as well as a senior researcher at Zurich Research's Institute for Biomedicine. Professor Staunton has also spent some time in South Africa, where she was a visiting fellow at the University of Cape Town's genetics department, as well as a visiting researcher at the Center for Applied Ethics at the University of Stellenbosch. Professor Staunton was also an advisor to the South African National Institute for Communicable Diseases on strengthening its data protection framework. I spoke to Professor Staunton about the state of disaster in South Africa and the possible implications it may have on us now and in the future. 
Under the Disaster Management Act, um, you they can enact regulations that will protect the public, uh, provide relief to the public, protect property, prevent or combat disruption, or deal with disruptive or other effects of the disaster. The emergency or the uh, the particular situation must fall within um, the uh, definition of a disaster under the uh, Disaster Management Act. And COVID-19 very clearly falls within that. You know, it is an issue of public health and there are concerns about the impact it will have on its individual uh, citizens. So absolutely, COVID-19 falls within the confines or sorry, the definition of a disaster. But there is discussions about whether or not the regulations that have been enacted as a result of the announcement of a disaster management uh, of the disaster actually fall within um, the uh, a state of disaster. Yeah, so there have been a lot of regulations that just don't seem to make too much sense. Um, for example, some of the clothing regulations, we can only buy yes. a shirt if it's marketed to be worn underneath a jacket or we can only buy shorts if we're going to wear them with stockings underneath, some really arbitrary regulations. And in and amongst themselves, they don't seem like a very big deal. Um, they're not huge injustices. But do you think small, small abuses of power like this could add up and provide a precedent for a bigger and more egregious um, abuses in the future? Okay, I think there's a couple of points we need to make here. Um, uh, yes, um, I have heard and you know, a lot of friends have been commenting on the arbitrariness of some of these regulations. I've had some friends who are pregnant who really struggled under the initial phase of lockdown. They couldn't get clothes to fit themselves. One friend, uh, she was resorting to wearing the clothes of her husband um, because nothing else fitted her. So um, there are real impacts on, you know, babies, for example, they grow at a remarkable um, pace. We need to have access to clothes. But one of the, the argument um, for having it so clear and cl so clearly laid down is so that there isn't uh, police overreach. So if there was vagueness in the regulations, they could be they would be interpreted on a level of um, of the police. And there's a concern that if they elected the police to interpret it, there would be abuse. Okay. So on that side, that is why they're very, very clearly laid down. However, Concerns that um, I would have, and I'm not just talking about South Africa, I'm talking about the, um, um, the regulations being passed the world over, is that this is a sign of things to come and that these very detailed regulations and the incursion of the, of the state into what is essentially our private lives, could this could be start of something more. And this is where it's important that we have judicial oversight and parliamentary oversight. Now, judicial oversight is very clear. It's been exercised in South Africa. Parliamentary oversight becomes a bit difficult when there is no reason under the uh, Disaster Management Act for Parliament not to meet. However, the rules around social distancing, for example, is limiting the ability of large groups to uh, meet. Um, now you'll hear from my accent. I am not from South Africa. I'm mm -hmm. currently hiding out in my parents' house in the west of Ireland. And um, there are challenges with our parliament meeting to deal with the situation because of the social distancing rules. They're trying to find ways around it, either having teleconference in so that um, certain members of parliament can video conference in, or do they only have a certain number of people meet? So we are trying to find ways around to ensure that we can't uphold the rule of law while having these regulations. But I think your point about it, that it 
could be used as as a template for future not so much abuses of power, but I would say, you know, incursions on our civil liberties. Mm. It could very much be used for it. Um, in other areas of which I would have huge concerns is um, is around these contact tracing apps that we're seeing. Uh, the use of these apps for um, testing and treating. On paper, they sound absolutely necessary, you know, that if, you know, uh, surveillance um, is a very important part in curbing the um, spread of this disease and contact tracing is an essential part in curbing the spread of any infectious disease. We saw that in West Africa during the Ebola epidemic in Nigeria. One of the reasons why it really had managed to limit the spread of Ebola there was because it had a very um, good um, contact tracing um, process in place. Um, information technology has been kind of heralded and these digital tools as an important part in our ability to spread this. On paper, yes, but they come with an awful lot of caveats and there's a real possibility that they will limit our protection of privacy and our right to privacy. And I would have a concern that in trying to get to a new normal, whatever that new normal is going to be, we've heard a lot of people talking about that we will never to return to normal and our aim is to get to a so-called new normal. But in getting to this new normal, we are enacting laws and regulations that are limiting certain rights. And in using these limited and in these regulations that are limiting these rights, they will become normalized and a part of the new normal. And we need to make sure that this does not happen. Yes, there are times when we can't limit certain rights, but these are exceptional circumstances. And these exceptional circumstances, the process should not become normalized. And I think that is very important in getting to this new normal. Yeah, there's been a lot of uncertainty surrounding the whole situation. Um, we don't have much of a timeline as for when we can expect really anything. Um, and part, part of this uncertainty is because the government's been limiting what information we can receive. Mm. Um, but also because we just don't know certain things. We don't know when we could expect a cure and we don't, or a, uh, an effective treatment. And we don't know when we could expect um, a vaccine. Do you think there's a possibility that this uncertainty and this uncertainty of the timeline could be abused and this um, state of disaster could be extended unnecessarily and so we'd have to continue living under or living with limitations in our civil liberties. Absolutely, yeah. You know, with anything like this, there is the risk of abuse um, in, um, and not just in South Africa, but across the world. Um, I've, I have massive concerns about the limiting of um, access to information for um, citizens. Um, while, uh, and this has been a feature of the government's policy from the very, very beginning. It was very much trying to limit the uh, voice. And it makes sense in one way. They want to make sure that there's no message and no spread of false information. And the spread of false news is something that we really do want to curb because we don't want these fake cures or fake treatments getting out, even if one of the proponents of many of these fake uh, fake treatments is sitting in the White House. But we really do need to spread the curve of this. But the focus should not be on disinformation, but there should be a huge focus on information and the spread of information. And what has been at the very beginning, um, the South African policy really failed in its lack of engagement um, with various sectors of society. 
Um, if you are introducing policies, which has a huge impact on um, the freedom of movement, the freedom of, um, of access to goods, the freedom of assemblies, you must be engaging with those who actually it impacts, particularly because of the economic consequences of, of these limitations on, very no, uh, on a huge sector of society um, in South Africa. So that would be a concern that I would have had. Um, I saw recently um, over the weekend, I think it was Professor Glenda Gray of the MRC, um, she was coming out and criticizing um, some parts of the government's um, policy. That's essential in a modern democracy. We need a mix of views. To have one voice kind of leads to this false assumption that science knows what's going to happen. All the science knows is that there's a huge amount that it doesn't know. And we need this dialogue and debate. And why it's important that we, why we need this dialogue debate is because whatever happens in the rest of the world and whatever policies and guidelines and treatment procedures and contact tracing procedures that follows in the rest of the world, Yes, we can learn from them, but they must be contextualized to the particular circumstances that South Africa fall, um, sees itself in. We saw at the very beginning that it's got high rates of HIV and TB, and there was concerns about the impact a lot of these comorbidities would have on the spread of the disease and, um, and the virus. And that's important to consider all of these factors in developing up these policies. And we have a certain number, you know, South Africa, South Africa is very, very lucky that it's with... Um, it's a high level, um, high level individuals who are advising the government, but they're not the only ones who are, the, who are there. There's a huge amount of researchers who contribute to the ongoing debate um, that um, on the development of these guidelines and policies and their voices is, is essential. They must be heard. Yeah, it's quite unfortunate that um, professor that you just brought up, who was very critical of some of the regulations um, that the South African government has imposed. Our health minister was very upset with her comments. Um, and sort of attacked her because of those comments. Mm. So it seems like people in power aren't very open to public and transparent conversation, which is quite a concern, especially when you're living in South Africa. And these are the people mm. who are making, who are not listening to experts, or we don't know if they're listening to experts because they haven't given us any information, mm. but they don't seem very open to conversation, at least not publicly. Yeah, we, we don't know what conversations are going on behind. So whether or not they've already listened to Professor Gray's comments, we don't know. But the um, a hallmark of any democracy is this critique. And we need to be able to critique decisions that policy, policy makers are made. Mm. Because the more you critique, the more you refine um, uh, the policies. And a lot of these people, they may... There may be no basis for their critique, but there might be a really valid basis that we should actually listen to. And I think the concerns that's uh, raised by Professor Gray and other people um, and other individuals should be heard and listened to and fed into this ongoing dialogue on what is an appropriate response in the South African context. This lack of willingness for conversation is very concerning. Um, the lack of, sorry, what? The lack of the, the lack of conversation and the willingness of those in power, those making decisions to have conversation is concerning. But what is also concerning is the lack of transparency. Um, mm. They refuse to they've refused to um, to release the minutes of the meetings while they've been discussing regulations. Um, we were only on Tuesday, they only just released the the data that they've been looking at to make these the model um, and the predictions they've, they've, that they've been using. 
they've only just released that data yesterday. So we, we've been left in the dark quite a lot. And I think for a lot of people, you know, we, we don't know, we just don't, we don't, we can't even formulate our own opinion because we don't know what data they're using. So we don't know what, whether these measures that they are taking is proportional um, in response to, in response to the threat that we have, which is concerning. Yeah, I know. I would agree with you that, like, you know, transparency is key about um, because you want to, in order for the regulations and any response to work, you want to have um, uh, the support of those um, who who it is seeking to um, uh, to oversee. So, for example, the general public, um, and in order to for the general public to agree and and follow through with any lockdown measures or or procedures or, or policies that the government wants to do, they want to have the confidence. And and there is an awful lot of um, sectors society upset. Um, and rightly so, who are angry. Uh, and because these regulations have really affected their livelihood and their ability and their basic human needs. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, transparency is key and um, as much information as possible should be given to the um, general public in moving forward. So you mentioned earlier that there's a difference between a state of emergency and a state of disaster. Um but that the, the state of emergency is not yet off the cards for South Africa. What, under what grounds would a state of emergency be declared on top of the state of disaster? And what, what could we expect if it was to be declared? Um, it was mooted very early on when well, the president at the very um, early days of the state of disaster did actually, was actually asked, I think at this point, or a member of government was asked, and um, they didn't rule it out at that point. I don't see it happening now. I really don't think that it, it would happen now. It's not politically viable because um, there would be further limitations of rights. And um, uh, they would be, you would, we're, lo- we're looking towards kind of getting out of lockdown, whereas state of emergency would be going back in. Okay. So I, I really don't see that happening for no other reason than politics is becoming, in the initial stages and with most government responses, it was very much about public health. Whereas now we see a lot of economic concerns and we're shift the conversation shifting from one of just focusing on public health to the impact that public health regulations is having on the economic welfare of its citizens. So um, personally, I just don't see that happening. Right. You mentioned earlier that parliamentary oversight during a state of disaster is, is really limited, um, especially during, during this, this situation. Um, part of that is because um, Parliament isn't involved in any decisions um, about the regulations, but also because Parliament has been limited, the, the ability to um, to meet has been limited from the restrictions. So is there any concern that one party during the state of disaster holds all the power and, and the, the other parties representing South Africa do not? I think, well, this is just a, a feature of modern democracies. Um, in the UK, for example, um, conservatives are in power. They have a large majority. They're making all decisions. Um, they're making a lot of terrible decisions, but they are making the decisions because they've been democratically elected uh, to this. There are other ways in which you can, so it isn't just parliamentary oversight, but there's committees. And um, in the UK, various committees are meeting to oversee the certain regulations. Um, 
it's obviously it would be good for um, the kind of take up and support of these regulations if, if other parties are invited to feed into the development of these regulations. But under a modern democracy, if it's a one party, if one party has been elected to lead um, the um, to lead the uh, development of to lead to be in government, then, then that is what we're left with. What I actually think is much more important is not so much focusing on the parties and, and, and the engagement of the parties, but engagement with experts, those who know we're talking about, and also community engagement, stakeholder engagement. I think it's essential that we have feeding from um, community groups, community activists, those on the ground who these regulations are actually going to impact. It is essential that they are um, engaged with in development of these regulations. Business group, mining groups were consulted in the development of regulations in South Africa, but we need to go much lower. There are other stakeholders that are important to be um, uh, taken into consideration. And we see that in any response, in any other infectious disease, such as TB, HIV, community engagement is essential um, for the support of the research and also any treatment and prevention campaigns. Equally so, COVID-19 is an infectious disease and community engagement should form a central part of that. So we can learn a lot from what has happened in South Africa in, H in the response to the HIV and TB epidemic. But I also think it's worth noting how community groups and community activists had an important part in the West African Ebola um, response. I think that is key um, and that should be um, taken into consideration. Okay. okay, thank you for your time. Um, I really no appreciate. It. I really appreciate. It. I know I'm just a student, and this is just a small student production. No, no, but I sure. really appreciate you willing to to spare me some of your time. Yeah. Okay, there we go. That was the first episode of In Focus. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope it was informative at the very least. Um, I am very open to critique. Let me know what you guys think. Um, drop me some hate mail whatever um i just want to know what you what do you think about it yeah and if you made it all the way to here made it this far thank you i appreciate you listening to it 20 minutes is a long time so i really appreciate you sparing me some of your time okay cheers guys <gasps> boom <laughs>